what we do here is go back, 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 back. It does no service to creating value for people where I came from if I won't say where I came from. And so nobody thought any thought this movie was going to work, and it did. One of my greatest struggles as a journalist is that I'm an emotional person and I'm a sensitive person. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. 10,000 No's is built on the premise that hearing stories of struggle from people who most of us would consider to be successful is a way for the rest of us to realize that we're not alone. If you've already subscribed on iTunes and you like what you hear, please share it with others. You can take a screenshot of your phone while you're listening, post it on your social media, tag at Maddie Dell on Instagram or at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook, email it to friends, or just let people know it exists and how you found it. If you can leave an iTunes review, even better. That really helps. Either way, I appreciate you listening, and I hope you're as inspired by my guests as I am. I had a blast to the point where, you know, two nights in a lecture hall, and I came out of it, idiot that I am, and I was like, I'm going to be an actor. Welcome to this episode of 10,000 No's. It's a unique episode in that I am not the host, but the guest. Adventure photographer Roger Fishman, whom avid listeners might remember from episode 18, insisted that he needed to interview me so my listeners would hear my story. To be honest, I didn't want to do it. It's a lot easier to ask questions than talk about myself, but in true me fashion, once the mic was in front of me, I talked a lot. Let's hope you all agree with him and walk away with something worthwhile. Regardless, my heartfelt gratitude to Roger for forcing me to open up. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Good morning. This is Roger Fishman. And uh, today we're turning the tables on Matt Del Negro, who is the creator and usual host of this wonderful podcast, 10,000 No's. Matt, good morning. How you doing? Thank you for having me. This is a, it's an incredible podcast you have here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I spent a lot of time developing it. So Matt, why don't we, why don't we jump in here? All right. Uh, let's start with 10,000 No's. How did you come up with the idea and why is it so important to you and to the audience? Um, so 10,000 knows this specific title actually comes from a very specific conversation I had uh, years ago. Uh, my buddy, Billy Tangrady, I think I may have even spoken about this at some point. Um, my buddy, Billy, who's a, an actor, writer, uh, I know him from New York. We had done a play together there. And then we both moved out to L.A. Uh, he moved out a little after me. His parents were out visiting and uh, they said, how's it going? I don't know how long ago this is now. And they said, how's it going? I said, good, good, you know. And um, I, we got to talking about acting careers and I said, you know, I've been speaking to some schools. They've had me come in and talk to these MFA programs when they're about to graduate. They'll they'll have me come in and, and talk about what it's like, you know, in, to be a working actor versus being in a conservatory. And I said, I, I tell these people, you know, I'm basically told no for a living. So if you're cool with that, it's great. And he goes, oh, yeah, how many no's have you heard? And I, I kind of I said, well, let's see, there's five, five work days in a week. There's 52 weeks in a year. I've been doing this for over two decades. I'm like, I don't know, 10,000 no's? I'm like, it's, and I like Malcolm Gladwell and 10,000 hours uh, 
theory and and we kind of just laughed about it and I said oh that'll be my bio someday you know 10,000 knows the Matthew Del Negro story and then discovered that podcasts existed and then realized I had conversations with people really my whole life that are similar to these conversations and uh started to develop this idea dragged my feet for a long time and then finally pulled the trigger uh, fantastic there's a question for you what is the importance of a no and how have those 10,000 no's impacted you? Uh, well, I think, you know, I, it's probably a lot of this, this theory comes from my dad where he says, you know, failure is just opportunity in disguise. And I think it's an opportunity to learn about yourself, learn where you could have done better, um, how you could approach something slightly differently. So I, I think you kind of, the the best, the greatest teacher really is, failure, rejection, you know, uh, there's the old sports saying that you learn more in the losses than you do in the wins. Um, and so, so I, I feel that, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's all about realizing that you will, you will get knocked down inevitably. Everybody, nobody is unscathed. Um, you, you know, you, you kind of look around and we've talked about this before you look around at, it's easy to look at your neighbors and go, oh, they got it made and they've got it. But it's at, at some point, everybody's going to hit some wall and you're going to have to have the skill set to get through or get over that wall or decide, hey, this wall is here and I, I no longer want to bang my head against it. I'm going to go around this way. Um, so I, I guess the the rejections, the, the, the failures, the no's have, have uh, kept me humble, kept me you know, learning and, and kind of growing in some way. All right. Well, you mentioned your father, so I want to get into that in one second, but for all the listeners, you know, you've had a, have a very successful acting career. You obviously have a successful podcast business that you've created a program. You have a wonderful family that I know you deeply love. And I know uh, fairly well, actually just so everyone knows our sons are friends and met each other through local basketball. Uh, so I really want to talk about where you are today, but to get started, we're going to go back to what you mentioned about your father's advice. So okay. Let's talk about uh, where did you grow up? Did you have any siblings? Uh, and what was it like growing up? I grew up in Pound Ridge, New York, which is in Westchester County, about an hour north of New York City. Uh, very, despite being that close to the city, it's really very rural. Um, you had to have two acres of land, so it was it was woods. I mean, my my best friend lived across the street. And had uh, his woods backed up into the Pound Ridge Reservation. So we'd play manhunt back there. And, you know, it was like playing flag football or playing tackle football or whatever on people's yards, playing basketball. And, and my mom would literally like ring a cowbell <laughs> at, at like six o'clock to say, come back for dinner. Were you a big heavy kid? Is that why? Or was she just ringing the cowbell? <laughs> no, no, no. She, oh, okay. <laughs> she would ring the, no. So, so I have, I have an older sister who's five years older than me. I have an older brother who's three years older. And then, and then there's me. Um, so it, you know, really, I didn't think about this till later, Maybe not even until I had kids and we, we've been out here. We had our kids out here in L.A. And, and I thought, man, my kids are getting a very different upbringing than I got in terms of there was a lot of solitude for me. A lot of um, I, I just wonder in some way, did that contribute to my, uh, I guess you would call it contemplative nature? You know, I, I'm, I feel like I'm a thinker and I think I had a lot of 
there, there was a lot of space and silence um, in, in a way that uh, is so different from the experience of my kids and a lot of you know people that I know their kids these days where you know you're scheduled for I played sports I played a ton you know I always had stuff going on but it it wasn't the same it was like you weren't doing camps and you weren't doing right I don't know you just had a lot more time just where you were with your friends and you you know didn't really have a schedule so much and you and you were kind of you got on your bikes and you'd ride five miles to the Salem market to get like a pack of gum you know, <laughs> over the summer, just because, you know, because you had like, you were like out of the house, you had to be like out of the house at a certain point. And then, you know, the cowbell at the end and you'd, you'd be playing basketball and you'd, and you'd run back in. Um, so I don't know, very, very, very different upbringing. Well, it sounds like you had a really wonderful childhood. Yeah. I mean, I had a, a probably like, um, like everyone, uh, a, a a mixed bag of everything. Um, it was. What was in that mixed bag? Oh, see, this is where I don't like the <laughs> the tables turned on me. This is why when, when I, Roger I the host. <laughs> talked about doing this, I was like, I don't really want to start into talking about me. But uh, the mixed bag, I don't know. I think um, I think being the youngest, um, I picked up on a lot of, I kind of ended up picking up on, on any tension in the household, any, uh, kind of, um, unspoken tension. And, and I, I really absorbed it. I think that's, you know, in retrospect, probably why I went into, you know, what I went into being an actor and a storyteller. Um, exactly. How did that influence you? The fact that you picked up on that tension? I don't know. I feel like I, I was, you know, kind of in a way the, the, the diplomat of the family. Um, I shared a room with my brother. Um, I had a relate, my sister is five years older. So, you know, when I was in seventh grade, she was already out of the house, but we kind of have, uh, a special relationship, but like growing up, it was, she seemed so much older than me, but now we have this, um, this connection and even I'll get into it later, but something that, that turned me toward acting was, was directly related to something my sister did for me. Um, and, and my, my brother and I always had this kind of, he's three years older. We were never on the same sports teams cause he was that much older that he would be on varsity. I was still a sophomore, but he kind of like, he toughened me up in a lot of ways. You know, he was, and he loves this comparison of the Wonder Years. Uh, you know, did you ever see the Wonder Years? Yes, great. So he was Wayne to my Kevin, <laughs> and he loves that comparison. Um, he and he, he really pushed me in a lot of ways. And our relationship, he ended up going to Boston College. He was a senior when I was a freshman there, and we kind of our relationship changed at that point. Kind of got more on par, and then we both. Actually, all three of us at one point were living in New York City at the same time. And um, my brother was, uh, he at one point was one of the owners of the bar where I bartended. And so we kind of had like all the same friends and we, and we became more friends at that point. But growing up, he was definitely like older brother to my younger brother. Um, I feel like I got off top. Oh, you're, you're asking how that contributed. I would say, you know, in retrospect, I look back, there was a, there was an English class that I took. Um, I went to a public high school, John Jay High School. 
and really a, just a great school to the point where we had elective classes. And one of these elective classes was, it was called O'Neill. And it was this guy, Roger Harris was a teacher and um, he was really into Eugene O'Neill. I mean, he, you know, he knew everything about him and we studied O'Neill, but it was not, I never thought of acting. I, I just didn't even have any exposure to it really. So at that time that you're playing sports, right? Yeah. You're big into sports. Yeah. But, but, uh, but at this point, I remember I'm just mentioning this is that I remember reading long day's journey into night in class. We just read it out loud and I was really blown away by it because it was a play about a family and they, what O'Neill did masterfully was he gets into in different sections of the play, you hear the story of the family from each perspective. And I really related to that because I, I felt like I could I could see, you know, you have five individuals under one roof and there's going to be all conflicting viewpoints. And I could see that um you, you know, the story is is different depending on whose perspective you're coming from. And, and I guess I identified with that. I feel like I've always kind of had friends in different groups. And so I've always been kind of uh, someone who, you know, could be friends with someone over on this side of, of the, the school and also friends with someone over here. And I could see from multiple perspectives. And I think that's kind of a skill set that is used in, in, you know, for my work now. So you, you mentioned a couple of things that I think are really worthwhile digging into. You know, you talked about being a diplomat in your house uh -huh. and you talked about the tension, but what you what you seem to suggest is that influenced you to become an actor. Y yeah. Um, and if so, how, well, let me see. Uh, so, so my parents, um, you know, this is where you get, you're like, Ugh, I don't really talk, but my parents, uh, they, they, split up at the end of my college. So they were married for 29 years and it, it, it technically still not even, you know, officially divorced there to get, but they're, but they've, they've been, you know, since the end of college, but there was, there was tension earlier and there's such, there's such great parents. And I've talked about that in here. Um, just so uh, really supportive of us as kids and, um, and, really uh, good human beings. But I think it ultimately, as as happens in many relationships, it just, it just didn't work out. And and yet, you know, I hear from my in-laws and from other people, they're like, you, you know, your parents are better than most married couples. They, they come to the same, you know, we spend the holidays together, anything that's around the grandkids or they come together and it's it's kind of much better now than it was in, in a way when back then. Um when I when I say it contributed, uh, huh? I don't I don't know. It just, maybe my sensitivity of everything that was going on. I feel like I could pick up on a lot of uh, nuances of body language and all of that kind of thing. Um, maybe without even without even realizing it at the time, you know. Uh, I don't know. Um, well, let's talk about a couple of things because I think you know, a lot of people know you from your acting, mm -hmm. right? And they'd like to know, like, how did you get into it? And also, as it relates to this podcast subject of 10,000 No's, what are the 
challenges you faced along the way? And how did you deal with those? Because in every industry, especially your industry, there's a lot of rejection. It's extremely competitive. You're essentially an entrepreneur, right? It's you and it's just you. So how did you get into it? And then how did you decide to persevere? How did it become so important to you that you were willing to go through those 10,000 no's? Okay, good question. Um, So, well, you talked about sports before and you said, oh, you played sports. I I think sports in a lot of ways for me was a big big no. Um, I don't know if it looks like that from the outside, uh, but but for me, I always um, I always felt like I wanted to be great, um, and I never really was naturally. Uh, I think I'm a I guess I'm a, a decent athlete uh, because I I ended up accomplishing some things, but um, hang on one second. Okay. I ended up accomplishing some things, uh, but it was always, I always felt slow and weak and skinny. And, and it was like, I was putting in time in the weight room and I was putting, I, I always felt like I was, uh, th- that, that I, I was battling just to, just to get there. I was a student of the game and whatever sport I was playing. And, um, and I think I did naturally for whatever reason, I, I, I have, the ability to get knocked down and get back up. Um, I think, I don't know if that's like learned from uh, my parents, from my siblings. Uh, Is it it in my DNA? I don't know. But um, sports always felt like, you you know, I, I always felt like I was surrounded by my friends who were these incredible athletes. And I was just kind of like, just grinding, grinding, grinding to hang in there. And, um, you know, ended up the, the, the sport that I went furthest in, ironically, is one that I started the latest, which was seventh grade. I started playing lacrosse and I ended up playing at Boston College, which was um, Division One. And but, it, you know, we were like a, a 500 team, you know, we were like eight and six. I played freshman, sophomore year, and then I could talk about when I turned toward acting. But but um, so I got somewhere, but it always was. It was always a grind. I mean, it was really, it, it was more of a, a willful thing. And I think I I transferred that attitude, uh, all those lessons I learned in sports, I transferred them into my career. And I just thought like, there's, there's no way that I'm not, gonna, there's no way that I'm going to be kept out of this. You know, when I'm in my best head, I, I just think there's, there's no way I'm going to let someone you know, not allow me to do something that I want to do. Um, and, and so I fight. And um, I remember hearing a story of a, a family friend who they're a really uh, talented family. And um, as my, my buddy's older sister was like, went, went to a conservatory and, and she was so talented, did like the, you know, the high school plays and everything that she was older than me. And, and, you know, <laughs> I'm getting getting calls here, my host. And she and she went to a conservatory and I think ended up walking away going like, oh, I don't have 
everybody else had these kind of harrowing stories of their childhood and I, I don't have one. And it, it in, made her think like, I don't think I should be doing this. And she teaches and she's a great teacher and she's kind of done all this, this uh, work with uh, some local schools and, and put on incredible productions and everything. I remember hearing that before I was even an actor and being pissed off. Like, how did you let them tell you that your story wasn't worth it because you didn't, you know, why are you not able to be represented just because you, you know, you didn't, you know, lose a leg when you were younger or, or something dramatic, you know, everybody has, everybody has a story. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, they're, they're all different kinds of stories. That's part of the 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 whole point of this podcast is that I could pick anybody off the street and they've got a story and you know, their problems and their issues are going to be different than yours. And maybe they're not as dramatic uh, or they're more dramatic, but, but everyone has their own set of issues that they're dealing with. I completely agree. I think we all do. And what's interesting is one of the things that you're talking about, which seems universal, is honestly self-doubt, right? Am I really good enough? Why does everyone else appear to have it easier, better as an athlete or as a business person or a creative person? I think that's a common theme. And yet you persevered through that and you found a way to pursue a career in a field that one, you had no experience in. When did you start acting? When's the first time you actually started acting? The first play I did was um, my junior year, spring of junior year of college. And it wasn't even in a on a stage. It was in a lecture hall at BC. It was a two-night performance of William Soroyan, Hello Out There. Um, so, and, so, so, so up until then, you're an athlete, essentially. Yeah. You thought you've had to work harder because you weren't a natural athlete. Yeah. You're now playing Division One lacrosse. Yeah. But you started late. Yeah. So you proved that you could pick up something late and compete with the best of the best. Then you ended up with this play. Yeah. To the, how did that come about, first of all, and what attracted you to it? Uh so it, it came about because I was, was playing lacrosse and lacrosse is a spring sport. And I, I wanted to go abroad, study abroad um, at some point. And most people would go spring of junior year. And I always thought for some reason, Australia, which I've still never been to Australia. I had some image of Australia in my mind. And a lot of people had gone like spring of junior year. And I thought, well, I can't do that because I'm going to miss the lacrosse season. I don't want to do that. So I ended up going to uh, Italy between sophomore and junior year uh, of, of school so that I wouldn't miss a lacrosse season. And I, I ended up, I was going out with a girl from, uh, from BC. We broke up while we were, she was there in a different city and I was there and we broke up and all of a sudden I basically was, I was like in this foreign city kind of on my own. And my sister had given me uh, a journal before I went. <clears throat> and like, you see like the first journal entries are like, you know, today I went to the Perugina chocolate factory <laughs> and it was like all this boring stuff that I thought I was supposed to write. And then I went through this kind of experience where I really felt like I was like out on my own, you know, and I just started, I picked up the journal and I just started writing and writing and writing. And just a lot of stuff came up from my childhood that was, um, 
I don't know, just, just things that I guess I had been grappling with. And ultimately kind of, if you know, to make a long story short, the, the takeaway was like, I was, I was playing lacrosse. I kind of had almost developed this persona, um, in college that was fun, but it wasn't fully me. And I was like, I feel like I'm just, I'm doing something because I've been on this track and I don't know if I really want to be. And in that journal, like was the first, that was the first hints of me going, what do I want to do with my, what do I want to do with my life? You know, what am I doing? And I thought like, oh, maybe I'll be a writer. Maybe I'll be an actor. I said like, you know, it was kind of like throwing stuff out there. And I kind of had this, this awakening and in a way, I mean, I look back at it now, I think I was having panic attacks while I was over there. I mean, there's really had a lot going on. Um, but I didn't know it at the time, but it was pretty intense. And then I went back to school and I, I felt like I kind of found my voice, but then I went back to school and I just played fall ball. Cause that's what I always did. So I went back to it and I was, it was the end of fall ball, my junior year. And we were running, uh, we were doing laps around Sheffield at, at BC. And I remember thinking, man, I just wish I'd, you know, roll my ankle. Cause I'm like, I, I really don't want to be here. And all of a sudden I thought, this is, this is crazy. Like you're not on a scholarship. Like, what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I kind of thought about it for a while and I went into coach and I said, um, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm done. And he said, think about it. You know, you still have a a spot on the team. Just tell me by whatever time I said, I've, I've thought about it. I'm done. And right after I did that, I thought, oh my God, what did I do? And I had this kind of, uh, like, holy crap, what am I doing? What am I doing? I felt totally uh, like I was flailing, but I kind of stuck to that decision. And I kind of wanted to go on spring break and I wanted to experience the other side of college that I hadn't, you know. Right, so I want to ask you a question because you said something that's really important. You said two things that are really important amongst many. One, you're overseas, you're writing. And at some point in time, you had this breakthrough, of like, what do I want to do? Yeah. So one of the questions is, how did you get to even that question? Because most of us don't question our lives. And then you quit lacrosse, okay, when you're doing really well, but you weren't being you, you're almost being a persona, as you said. And then you had another sense of like, what did I just do? Oh my gosh, but you stuck to it. So you went through a process where you were really self-evaluating and you were digging deep. And even when you had the chance, because the coach gave you the chance to say, reconsider, essentially, you went into your anxiety, you went into the unknown. What do you think made you stick to that decision to go into the unknown with everything that comes with it, which is a lot of anxiety, discomfort, uncertainty about the future? Stupidity? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not sure. I think, I guess it was just, it was, um, you know, if you study story structure, they always talk about, uh, there's, there's kind of the opening, um, setup, like in a film, there's a setup where there's this, you're introduced to the protagonist and there's a set of circumstances. And, um, you know, if you read any screenplay structure books, they always talk about stasis equals death. And if you keep doing the same things, you're going to kind of 
go on this sideways trajectory that's a little bit of a flat line. And at some point, usually about, you know, maybe 12 minutes into the movie, 15 minutes into the movie, someone gets a phone call or there's a breakup or, you know, someone gets hit by a bus, something happens that's external that, that, that kind of comes like an asteroid into the protagonist and rocks their world. And, uh, in a way for me, you know, and then, and then that's kind of, that is the call, you know, and then there's that call. And then there's this section where there's like kind of this debate, you know, you think about it, Luke Skywalker, it's like, he, he comes back to his farm and his, his aunt and uncle have been, that the place has been torched and they've been killed. And right. But for you though, for, for you, because it sounds like there are two things that got you out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And that also could have been a trigger. One is you were in a foreign country in a foreign city. Well, yeah, I was outside of my my element. And I so I had a different vantage point. Um, and, and, and you, you and I look up. back at my life and from from Italy looking back, you're like, it, you know, it's pretty far away and it looks pretty small. And when you're when you're there in your life, everything feels like this is how it has to be, you know. The the buildings around you are this tall, you can't get away. But when you're looking from over here, you're like, oh, well, you could just move over here and get out. You know, it's just a different vantage point. It's also so vulnerability it, too, though, right? I mean, you're you're yeah. you're young, you're in another country, another yeah, another, I mean, another man, language, I, and you said you and your girlfriend broke up. Yeah. So any sense of familiarity is now sort of split wide open. Right. Right. And I mean, even just going to, <laughs> just going over to Italy, it was like, I look back at it now, I had one piece of paper. I flew all the way over to Italy. I, a guy, I, it, I, it was a, a man and a woman I had met that we were going from the airport to the, the, the Termini in Rome. And, and the guy got pickpocketed. He caught the pickpocket. We knocked <laughs> the guy. I get, on a, I get on a train. I don't speak. I barely speak the language. I get to Perugia. I go. I have this other guy that I met on the train who's like speaks Italian. He's like, oh, hey, go up this way. He gets goes on a scooter and takes off. And I get on a bus. I get there. It's the middle of the night. And the place that I see on the letterhead is closed. I thought they were going to be like, oh, Mr. Del Negro, you're in room 201. There was, like, I don't know how this happened, but there was, I was just totally out there on my okay, own. So let's talk about that. How did you have the confidence to take that journey with all the unknowns and also have the wherewithal to go figure it all out? Because a lot of people would just sort of stop in their tracks, right? But you obviously find your way or create your way. Well, I think most people do when they're put, you know, when you put someone in a position and that's maybe what it is, is like you put someone in a position, for example, that night when I got to Italy, I had nowhere to sleep. And all of a sudden I'm going, holy crap, I got a backpack on my back. I've, I've been traveling all night and I just heard some people. I tried to piece together a youth hostel. I heard some American voices, met some kids that were there from UCLA. I ended up like sleeping in some old Italian woman's apartment <laughs> and I'm laying down and I'm going, what am I doing, man? I'm like, I'm halfway across the world sleeping in this like woman's apartment. It, what, how did I get it? What am I doing? It was, so, I was totally out of my element. So those experiences, do they teach you more about resilience and, and going forward with 10,000 nodes? Yeah. I mean, I think... It's interesting. I think as humans, we're we're constantly choosing. Well, not everybody, but um, a lot of times, people's default is to choose comfort over uh, a situation that 
puts them in in harm's way or puts them in a uh, kind of a, a vulnerable position. But I think all of those times when, if you look back at your life, whoever's listening could look back at their life and think of like when they had their biggest leaps, it's usually when you're thrown into the frying pan because all of a sudden, you know, instinct kicks in and there's no theoretical, you know, I can be very much in my head. Um, When I've been thrown into things, I'm forced into my instinct and that's when it seems like I've, I've taken the the biggest leaps. Uh, you know, you're talking about that, that first play. I mean, I was totally, I mean, what the hell was I doing? I was, I was the lead of it. It was a tiny little play, but I was the lead of this. I, I, my dad says that he came, my parents both came up for that. <laughs> and I my dad always says it. He's like, I remember sitting in the audience going, okay, I'm going to watch my son. He's never done a play. Like he might just fall on his face, you know? And and I really could have, but I was, I was fully into it. And I, I had a blast to the point where, you know, two nights in a lecture hall and I came out of it, idiot that I am. And I was like, I'm going to be an actor. And I literally just said right then and there, I, I kind of made this declaration. I was an English major already. Um, and I, uh, do you want to move that? Are you, That's all good. And I, and I just said, um, I, I got film. I took film classes, got a film studies minor, but I, I just, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. So what was the, what was the draw? What did you feel so magnetically connected to that changed you and changed your life? Essentially, what pulled you in? I, I think I always was searching for something to do that, you know, whatever my, my profession was going to be, I wanted it to be something that fully used me. Um, Something that used my, I I I like I I kind of like psychology, but I remember I was like a psych major for a heartbeat, and I took some psychology classes, and I thought, well, all they're doing is putting labels on things that I feel like I instinctively know. I don't want to do that. And then I became an English major, kind of by default. I thought I was going to be a lawyer because I liked the way my dad talked about the law. My mom. Uh, as a special was is a retired special ed teacher from my high school, and so my parents really both are both teachers at heart, and and I like the way my dad talked about the law, and I I feel like the way I approach acting, you know, at, at some point I thought I like the way he talks about it, but he makes it sound cooler than it really would be, <laughs> and then, you know, and I thought acting is kind of the same thing. You're you know, as a lawyer, you get behind your client and defend their point of view to the world. But you have to do it through the prism of the legal system. As an actor, you're given this character and you have to get under their skin and defend their point of view to the world and give them dignity, no matter who they are. Even if they're a monster, you have to find their humanity. And and so it's the same, it's the same skill set. And but but what I liked about acting, and I think why I did you know two nights of a play and and said I'm going to do this, is that it kind of took all of it was like a it was like a best of of all the things I like to do. It was you know use my intellect, use my emotional life, use my interest in psychology and and people, use my body in a way that I, I'm physically doing it. I'm not just writing about it it kind of combined everything. And it also allowed me to go into different worlds and learn about those worlds, kind of 
immerse myself in them and then come out. It's a, it's a way to be, you know, in its, in its, in its greatest sense, in the, the best sense of, of, uh, an acting career is that you, um, you get to try on all these different lives and it's pretty, it's, it's just a great way to, to learn firsthand. It's like traveling to these worlds, but not just, not just reading about them, actually going in living them for a second. Okay. So let's talk about those two nights. Did you convince someone that a student with no experience in acting should be the lead? Did they come to you with it? How did that happen? So funny. I don't really remember. I do remember. So my roommate at the time, Eric Santiago, who uh, actually ended up helping me make my short film about 10 years ago, uh, he and I both at the same, we're like, we're going to go out for a play. And we went out for a play. I didn't get a role and he got the lead in that. And he had never acted before. He was really good. A month later, excuse me, I went out for this one. I don't remember. I don't remember the audition for this play to be quite honest with you. A lot of this play for me is, is like a blur. It's, it's weird. I have a great audition story for something right out of college, but this one, I don't actually remember the audition. I just remember I played a guy who wakes up in a, a jail cell in Texas and he's been accused of rape and he's trying to put it all together. And there's a woman that works at the at the jail and he's connecting to her and it's called hello out there. And I think I literally had to say hello out there like 60 times. I and mean, it's a hello out there, hello out there, hello out there. It was like, <laughs> I'd love to read this play now and see. Um, but I, I really, uh, I loved the experience, you know? So you have the experience, you graduate college. Yeah. Tell me what happened. Now, how do you enter this in- exceptional world of theater and entertainment and acting? which is not only exciting, highly competitive, very fluid, or essentially you're on your own. So what are the experiences you had? What are some of the hardships you had? What are some of the opportunities that came up? And what are things that, that didn't work out for you as well? Um, so I, I, uh, I entered the world, the way I entered the world is I, I came out, I mean, there's kind of, a, there's so many stories that it's hard for me to we could to, do one interview to, to a edit. podcast a day. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, no, it's, it's hard to edit and see what what's important to share with you, but um, I, I, maybe this is important. I, I I went out for another play my senior year, and I and I it was a Neil Simon play uh, called Strangers, I think. And I went I went to the rehearsal, and that first experience I had, I loved the other people I was working with, and it, it felt like a real like it was really going for something. And, and I think I got lucky in that one because this next one I went for, I remember going to the rehearsal and, and everybody seemed like they were just there for social reasons. Like it didn't seem to have the same intensity. And then I found out that the play was going up the weekend that Boston College was playing Notre Dame and all of my, <laughs> and all of my friends were going out to Chicago and Notre Dame. And I was like, I don't know. I'm not. Re-. And I had been to like one rehearsal and I did not jive one or two rehearsals and I didn't jive with the other people. And I thought how can I say I'm going to be an actor? This is my second play and I'm thinking of bailing on it, but I really don't think I, I am, am seeing eye to eye with these people. And I don't think it's going to be an experience that I'm going to get something. And I ended up dropping out of it, which was really rocked me a little. Cause I'm going, am I full of crap here? But I, I'm so glad I did. I had the trip of a lifetime. We went out to BC beat Notre Dame. <laughs> we stormed the field. Wait, but th- th- there's some real lessons in that, right? So, 
you're, you found a path that you want to go down, that you fall in love with your first time. Now here's your second chance. And you evaluated it. And you said, no, you left that yeah. opportunity, which is a pretty big risk on yeah. a human level, personal level, but your own self-confidence is also about what other people think about your commitment. Right. What did you take away from that experience and how did that apply to other things you did in life? You know what? I should I should actually remember that experience more because I think ultimately, and I'm, I'm proud of that decision, what I realized was if I had done it, it wouldn't have been a commitment to the craft of acting for me, it would have been for other people to think I was committed. But I, I really was like, I don't think this particular thing, I'm going to get much out of it. Um, Can and said, so, so you've said that twice, actually, now. Once you talked about having a persona and lacrosse and then really reevaluating it. And in this case, if you went forward with this play, it really would be for other people, not for you. Yeah. So it sounds like there's been certain times in your life where you've really paid attention to you, what's important to you, yeah, and the real you, and then acted on that, move forward on that, yeah, yeah, and I, that's that's a good observation because I've, and it's probably something that um, the more consistently I can do that, the more uh, success I would have because every time you know if I think of all of the kind of the good audition stories where I did get something I felt like I, and there are a lot of times where I feel like I did, I did that and I still didn't get the role right. many times, but, but a lot of times when I've had um, big, you, you know, a, a good get on a, on a gig or it, and it came from something where I, I, I just said, screw it. And I did it the way I was going to do it. Um, so it sounds to me like knowing yourself taking the time to know yourself and being genuine and acting consistently in a way that's genuine to yourself, both accepting opportunity and rejecting opportunity has paid off for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, it has, I think it could more, I think some of my friends that I, I look up to, um, I think sometimes there's been a, a slower build in my career because it took me a long time with the exception of some of those stories. I think I, I tend to, um, my, I think my default has been not to be a rebel. And I think you need to be a rebel if you're going to be an artist. And so I just inherently, I, I feel like I'm more easygoing, go with the flow and then it takes me getting pushed to a point where I say, you know, screw this. I'm going to do it the way I'm going to do it. Um, and, and a lot of times those are times when I make the leaps and bounds. And, and it's probably something, you know, even as we're saying it, I'm going like, hmm, maybe I need to be more in that head without getting pushed there. And I think about now I'm thinking about <laughs> sports. I'm thinking that's how I played sports. I was kind of like a pretty good sport. And then if I'd get hit in some way, like I'd go it was like a, a, you know, cartoon character going red. And and um, maybe it shouldn't require getting hit before <laughs> I get into that that mode. Right, but it's interesting because I used to play sports too. And it's a, it's a team activity. It's an individual activity, but it's a team sport. 
And you have to rise up because they're counting on you. Yeah. Right? And if you rise up, then you stay part of that team. If you don't, but you're not as exposed as much, actually, as an artist. Because an artist, it's just really you. Even in an ensemble, you have to be your best and you always have to be on and you have to be willing to bet on yourself. Right? Yeah. There's no one else there for you. There's no teammates, actually. It's you're betting on yourself. And you've obviously bet on yourself and you've actually had a really good career in acting. Thank you. I mean, think you can list off all the you know, Sopranos. I mean, go on and on and on. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. What made you believe and bet on yourself and to get up every time you went down. Because there was no one there to lift you up, no teammates to really encourage you, per well, se, per se. Maybe you had a support system. I think I had a support. I mean, I, I think, um, first of all, starting with my parents. I mean, they're really supportive parents. Um, I feel like they, you know, they said to me when, because you know, what what does a parent say when the, you know, their kid goes to BC, which is not a not a cheap school, and he's like, I'm going to be an actor. It's like, great, man. You know, so <laughs> they, uh, to their credit, they said, listen, we're we will be there for you morally, spiritually. You know, go do it, go give it a shot. But we're not going to be there financially for you. Like, you got to figure it out. Um, once you leave college, once I leave college. Yeah. Cause college, I mean, right. you know, I'm very fortunate. They, they paid for college. Right. I, I had a minor little scholarship, like, you know, little academic thing, tiny, you know, nothing. It probably paid for like one book. Um, <laughs> what'd your siblings say? I'm curious. What'd your sister and brother say about me when being you an said actor? I'm going to be an actor? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think they, um, I remember getting into it with my brother when I got back from Italy we had, we got into it because I I all of a sudden came back with like fire in my in my gut and he was I was like I don't know maybe I'm gonna be a writer he's like what are you gonna write about <laughs> and I was like fuck you you know it's called brotherly love and, yeah. and um but they've ultimately been re- and and my sister was more probably um you know encouraging of that but my my brother you know it's funny with him is like he's like this kind of like tough love guy where he doesn't like to. He doesn't like to look like he cares, but he really does. I mean, truth is, if I wasn't bartending at his bar, it would have been a lot harder. I mean, I, I was, I was, you know, I had a great gig. I'd bartend and if I had to go, I mean, granted, I was responsible so they could trust me and all that. But like, you know, I had a, I had a good gig and he and he's looked out for me. They 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 both have. And um, but yeah, they. they it, it was more my own um, transition. And I talked to younger actors about this. There's like this whole period. I mean, and it took years to finally say to people without twitching and making a joke to say, I'm an actor. When people ask, what do you do? I mean, it, you know, it would go from like, well, I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm waiting tables and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm studying and I'm trying to be an actor. So when did and, it turn and, for you? When did you say the- this is who I am. This is Well, I mean, I always, I, I said, this is what I'm doing, but to say fully, like, I'm an actor. And then you have people like, yeah, but what do you do? Like, how do you make, I'm like, I'm an actor. That's what I do. That's, that's how I, that's what's on my tax returns, you know? But that took, that took a long time for that to happen. Um, I, I think, you know, going back to what you said, how do you pick yourself up? Support system. Uh, and then I've met people along the way. 
a lot of people that I met early on in New York that I'm still friends with now and, and we're still doing it. Um, you know, just one that comes to mind is one my best friend out here, Chris Messina, who's a great actor and has been not just to me, I call him the patron saint of actors because he's <laughs> he's so good to he he's done very well for himself, super talented, super hardworking and dedicated. And he but he really pulls people up around him. And and he's been a, a constant support. Billy Tangrady, who I told you about, another guy, Blake Robbins. There's, there's a bunch of them. And then there are the teachers that I had. And then there's my family. And then I met Deirdre, Deirdre and her family. It's just, it it's endless. I mean, I, I would say um, where I'm really really a lucky guy is that I have a lot of people around me who have, who have been very supportive, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, and I, and I think that's, it's, it's so huge in, especially if someone is, is an aspiring actor or, or anything or an entrepreneur somewhere where, where getting knocked down is, is a daily occurrence. I think having a support group around you is, is so important because there are days when you're just like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to get up off the floor, you know? And, and if you don't have those, I mean, you know, we laugh my, my core group of friends that are all actors with me. We laugh that we, we could just hit like number 17 and play this conversation <laughs> that we've had like 20,000 times over the last 20 years. You know, it's just like, it's the same conversation. And, and, and in one version, they're on the couch and I'm their therapist. And the other version, I'm on the couch and they're my therapist. And it's just, that's, that's the way it is. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, you're lucky. But what it sounds like, it's a lot more than just luck. It sounds like you've created a life where you have put yourself in different positions where you could either create opportunities, create relationships, where you also were generous to the other people too. So that would help build that friendship and that camaraderie and that support. It sounds like there's a lot of elements that have come into play over your life that it's much more than just luck. Thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, maybe I'd like to think that I've, I'm supportive and encouraging of other people. So I guess there's a reciprocal aspect to it. Um, you know, uh, I think uh, we talked about this earlier before the, this was rolling about I could be, you know, I could be way better with like the quote unquote networking. You know, I'm, I'm usually I'm I'm best in a cer- in a circumstance where it's it's like there's just this genuine connection with someone and and uh, and it comes about naturally. So it, what, what's ended up happening, I guess, is that the the people that I'm close to in I've known them for a while you know and there's been like a, a shared experience with them um I could probably be better at at pushing my agenda out there more um you know would serve me better so let's go back a little bit again you mentioned at one point your sister did something for you that was the journal she's was, the one that gave, she's okay. the one that gave me the journal, the journal that ended up kind of being my lifeline you know, so it's interesting that it's a serendipity. Like, there's a journal that at one level is just a functional piece of paper with a little enclosure, and there's a pen. Yeah, just functional. And at some way, it transformed your life. It became a bridge 
for you to tap into yourself in a foreign country with a lot of uncertainty and anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And then I've since gone on to fill, I mean, I filled that journal that week and got another one in Italy and filled that one, you know, it was like, and then over the years I've, I've, I've had them. And, um, do you still journal on a regular basis? You know, not as regularly, uh, but I do a lot of writing. So, you know, I have that journal over there, but it's kind of, it's, it's not like a, a daily occurrence that I'm in that anymore. Uh, maybe that will happen again, but it's kind of morphed into some other things. But So let's talk about your career, professional career. Okay. You're out of college, you're bartending. Where are you living back then? What kind of place is it? What's going on right there? Uh, I was living at 401 East 82nd, number 5A, <laughs> Primavera <laughs> Restaurant on 82nd and 1st. It was uh, rent-stabilized, uh, one bedroom that I turned into a two-bedroom with my first roommate. It was a buddy from college, Jeremy Royster. He's a great artist. He's a teacher now. Um, and and I, I asked my cousin who's in construction, how to build a wall. I built a wall, put a door in it. I built a loft, like the ones we built in college. And we both had lofts with desks under them. And I had, I got like a big metal, a hunk of a file cabinet from my dad's office and put like a thing across it. That was my closet. It was, it was pretty, it was not sexy. (laughs) And I, and I actually stayed there for seven years because it was rent stabilized. So it was like a thousand bucks a month split in two. So it was 500 bucks a month. And by the seventh year, it was 632 bucks a month. And that's, I always tell, you know, that's the other thing I tell like young actors like, well, what advice do you have? And I'm like, listen, keep a low overhead because you're not going to make money for a long time, you know, unless you're super lucky. And even if you are, if somehow that happens, it's like, just give yourself that, that room to, to grow and learn your craft because, you know, that's like the, the logistical part that most people don't think of in, in any business. It is a business, you know, it is a business. And like, so you need an incubation period. And I think that, that apartment in a lot of ways saved me. I mean, because I, I was able to you know, I, I had like four lives in one. I would, I would wait tables. I, I was, I worked the counter at California pizza kitchen. I bartended at Blackfin, which then turned to Turtle Bay. Um, I, I was studying with this guy, Terry Schreiber. You would have scene partners. So you'd go to all the different boroughs to meet with your scene partners and, and work on your, your scene for class. I would scour through backstage looking for, you know, uh, mostly unpaid jobs and submit my headshot and resume and, and a cover letter. And like every week going through circling eight to 10 things, sending them out, trying to get an agent. I mean, all of that crap, man. I get tired just thinking about what I had to do. <laughs> so you were hungry. I, mean, I you was were hungry. really hungry. Yeah. And it seems like that's a core part of your life too, is a drive to create your future. Yeah. So let's talk about it. What was your first break that you would define as your first break in New York where you go, yeah, I, I can, I can see some light. This, this job's going to lead. First break in New York was a movie called the North end. And I got it through backstage. It was non-union when I went in for it. And, um, it ended up turning union. The, 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 uh, director, a guy, Frank Ciotta, great guy. And his brother, Joe Ciotta wrote the script. They were in Boston 
And Frank had worked as a PA on Casino, and he got the script to Frank Vincent. Frank Vincent signed on. It became a SAG film. Frank Vincent got his buddy Tony Darrow, who's in, you know, these guys are all in like Scorsese films and everything. And I was really, it was the kind of the lead of the film. And there was a, a role of a friend in the film, and they couldn't find the guy. And I suggested a buddy of mine, this guy, Mark Hartman. And so he ended up doing the movie. And um, the, the, Actress was Lena Sivio, and uh, we went to Boston and we shot it in two different pieces. And it was like, it, it felt like the first real thing I had done. And it went to, I was, I was really proud of it. Um, and it ended up going to Montreal Film Festival. It went to Boston Film Festival. It played in, in Rhode Island. It was reviewed in Variety. And it, it didn't really, when I look back on it now, it, it, it's just, it was a milestone for me. It was like, I was away for six weeks as the lead of a movie, you know, I'm having scenes with Frank Vincent, who I'd seen in, you know, Casino and Raging Bull. And it was like a real, it felt like a real thing that gave me uh, confidence to go like, okay, I'm not totally delusional here, you know? And that was, I didn't make any money on it, but that was, well, I mean, that was still a few years in. I really didn't make a dime for years. (laughs) I really didn't. You know, and then when I did start getting like commercials and stuff, I just take that money and like. But were you happy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I was always striving. Yeah, definitely. Like there's a there's a certain, you know, you you talk about uh, I've I've read a lot of things and and heard interviews where they're talking about CEOs and they're all looking back to that time in the beginning. And like when you're in it, you you don't always realize it to the point, but there is a certain romanticism to that hunger and that young kind of spirit of like, we're going to do this and we're going to get that and we're going to take over the, you know, and it's like the the perspective shifts as you go along. But I, I think, I think that hunger and that kind of romanticism is, is important to, to hang on to because there's something, there's something really beautiful about that. This, this, feeling of like, oh, we're going to change the world with this and we're going to do, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a good thing. And, and there are times when you go, you know, like I said, it's a business. So there are times when I'm just hammered down repeatedly and, and you, you know, all of that enthusiasm is just, just pummeled right out of you. And you're like, this sucks, man. I got to go in for something that I don't even want to go in for. And there. And they're going to tell me no anyway. It's like being so forced. How do, you, how do you do that? So if you if you know you're highly likely to get a rejection, yeah, and you and you go like this is not going to work. One, could you tell the listeners why would you still do it? And then also, how do you still get up and go do it? Uh, why still do it is because I've come to realize that my take on whatever is in front of me is not necessarily what it actually is. Like I, I, you can't see everything from where you are. So there have been a lot of times where I've been like, ah, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do this or what am I going to get out of this? And like, and, and from where you're standing, you can't see that maybe you were going to meet someone on that, job that is going to become a best friend that's going to you're going to be friends with 20 years from now you 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 don't you don't know what you're going to get out of it um and 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 so sometimes you don't know and also there's a there's this thing that i i kind of believe in which is you're not 
necessarily auditioning for that particular role. You're auditioning for life. You know, that maybe it's that casting director or those someone who's in the room is is you're not going to get that job, you know, and, but it's not really about that job. It's like go in there, represent yourself well, do prepare, put put your best foot forward. And then who knows? I mean, you don't know where where it's going to connect. I mean, Scandal, which ended up being a really um, kind of a, a good break for me, was uh, that was, that was an, I don't get a ton of offers. That was an offer out of nowhere. And it was from a great casting director who, before I knew her, I used to, we used to watch Friday night lights. Absolutely loved it. And I used to say to Deirdre, like, this is what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about. Like, I mean, who's this casting director? Linda Lowy. Like she's got balls. She put all these people who, who are, are great on this show. And I don't know most of them. I don't know them, but they're all great. They cast the right person. So the first time I went in for her was for this, this uh, it was a, a pilot called Trauma. There was a Pete Berg thing. And it was a lot of the people from, from Friday Night Lights. I went in, it, it went well. They set up a test deal and I ended up, it, it all fell through. I didn't even test for it. And I was, it was totally just, just another shot in the gut. This is, then I went in for her for Grey's Anatomy and for some other stuff over the years, never got anything. And then out of nowhere, I get a call after another job went away. And I'm like, oh my God, what am I, I I don't have another gig. What am I going to, what's next? What's next? And literally out of nowhere comes a call. They want you to do this thing on Scandal. And I I was so out of it on Scandal. I was like, oh, that's kind of a, that's kind of a big hit for them, isn't it? I didn't realize it was a huge hit for them. And the role was like very much, you know, outside of my wheelhouse of a a gay male prostitute. I'm like, (laughs) you know what? I'm like, what? What was, but, but, you know, I couldn't see that coming. And there were probably a lot of auditions for her where I was like, I don't know that I'm going to get this role. I mean, you know. Right. Well, it sounds like you're giving actually a lot of wisdom in this, which is there's a lot of things going on beyond the surface and a lot of different things that you can't see. Any of us can see in life. And the notion is to keep open to what's possible, not just what's probable. Right? And that if you're willing to invest without a definitive outcome, Things can happen. We call it the pinball approach, right? Keep your life in play. And if you put yourself in play with lots of good people, you have a higher likelihood of good things happening. And it sounds like in your life, whether it's your family, your friends, other actors, you have put yourself in a position with good people. And that's paid off. And put yourself in the right opportunity and willing to invest in the long term. Does that... Sound true yeah, to yeah, and you know, you touch on something that uh, my friend said to me, which is I, I really agree with this. The older I get, the the goal, and maybe it's in every career, it probably is. The goal is to find your people, like find the the people that work the way. You know, every there's all different kinds of ways of working. You kind of want to find the people that get fired up about the same things that you do and that approach the work in a, in a similar way, which is why I've been, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I may, I could be terrible on Goliath when it comes out, when it's all cut together. I hope not. But what I loved about that was like, I felt like I found my people in terms of the way they worked. Um, There was an improvisational feel to the approach to the, the material so that it was, it was it was just the way that I work when I'm working with my friends. And and so 
that's, you know, that's like the, that's the kind of environment that I hope I get to work in again, where, you know, it, it, it feels really alive. Um, and yeah, so, you know, you, you hope you do that in your life. You can control it in your life. Sometimes in this, in this career, it's hard to control that. And you just go, you know, maybe the way you work will attract, if you're, if you're, you know, I interviewed someone yesterday, he was talking about finding his authentic self. Maybe if, if I go in for these auditions and I go, well, I'm just going to do it the way I'm going to do it. And and this is roughly what you're going to get. If you hire Matt Del Negro, this is a rough sketch of what you're going to get. And then they go, nope, don't want it. Don't want it. Don't want it. 99 times. Don't want it. Don't want it. But then the one person that sees that and you've been doing it the way you want to do it and they go, yeah. And then you find your people and then you, you know. Right. You- so two things you, sounds like you're coming out of that. One is you're betting on yourself. You're investing on your true self. You're not just saying, I'm going to take a job being somebody else. Even though by default as an actor, you're being somebody else. But you're being your truest self in the pursuit of your goal. Mm-hmm. And that two, the second piece that's built in there is, you know what? Life is often the nose, which is what your podcast is about. Life is often the nose. It's a question of what do you do with it? How do you deal with it? Yeah. And in your case, you found a way not only to keep getting back up, but also to get back up and stay true to yourself. Yeah. Okay. So how how do you do that? Because you've mentioned, you know, you it's tough when you don't know where your next gig is, where your next paycheck's coming from. I mean, like you got a family. Yeah. So how do you That's find so a way to bring up your family? Because I was just gonna say, you know, Deirdre has been like like it it it's tough, man. I think it's really tough to be married to an actor or an artist in terms of like you're it, it is so uncertain. I don't think people realize it. And at least for me, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm choosing this. I'm throwing myself. And, and she is too, by, by marrying me, you know, she, but I don't, I don't know that either of us realize the, you know, just the craziness that it can be. Um, and, you know, you, you, there are times I just go like, man, I, I you feel you feel horrible because you're like I mean there are trips that are we the joke for us is that like if I really want to book a job just plan a vacation that we really <laughs> want to go on and then I'll book a job and it's like it's uncanny how how it happens and everybody kind of in my industry says that um, but but to to have someone who is is raising our kids and um, you know I'm helping but I, she's definitely the the general, I'm like the foot soldier. And, and, you know, to, to have that is how I can have this life. You know, I said to you beforehand, I said, I, I feel like I'm just like a dad, like a husband, dad who happens to act. I don't necessarily feel like I'm at a lot of like premieres and this and that. It's just not what, you know, but to have this, this kind of, I guess, quote unquote, normal life that takes a woman that I married, who's, who's, cool about it and and who's like put up with a lot of tons of uncertainty tons of uncertainty man it's it's uh you know it's 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 rough at times and then it's also great at times so how, how do you and she deal with uncertainty and and cope with all that as a family too 
uh, with varying degrees of success, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it, it depends. I mean, it's always, it's always easier when, um, when I'm working a lot and it's, it's like you're, we're in a good flow, but there are times when you, you know, you hit a wall and, and it's inevitable in my, in my career, even like, like people don't, people don't realize it though, but you're, you're done with that gig. Like, now you got to go, as I say, you're like a caveman. You got to go out and like club the next bear, pull them into the, into the cave, chop them up, divvy and, and make it, you know, make it last for a while and then go out and get the next one. You know, so you, so it's, it's, um, it's uncertainty is, is kind of part of the game. And in a way that also kind of keeps you alive and keeps you, keeps you sharp in a certain way. Um, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a process and kind of, we're always going through together. So as you go through the process together, and since the podcast is 10,000 no's, how have those no's shaped you as a human being, as an actor, as a husband and a father? How, how have you seen that you evolve through that? Um, well, I think um, it's interesting that when I started this the podcast all of a sudden from the podcast has come this whole thing where I'm starting to venture into the, you know, I've done like giving speeches on like perseverance. And also I'm like, wow, am I like the perseverance guy? <laughs> you know, this, this, where did this come from? And, uh, and so I guess it's, it's kind of woven into my, uh, my DNA in some way that, that I'm just, uh, these are, this is the way that I, teach. It's always looking and going, okay, like, so, uh, if you're given lemons, you gotta, you gotta make lemonade somehow. And, and so that, that bleeds into the way I, I talk to my kids about, you know, I mean, you know, because our kids are on the same basketball team, but like, you, you know, failure, trying, keep shooting, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to miss shots. But if you, if you stop shooting, then you're, you're really screwed at that point. Um, I, I think it's, it's just, uh, it's contributed to, uh, a humility. I mean, I know there's kind of like a, I think there's like a, a cliche out there that, or, or a stereotype about actors being kind of, I don't know. I, I think there's like, there's like a, 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 an image of what it's like to be an actor. And I think for the most part, maybe aside from, uh, a, a few individuals, but I think like actors are largely, you know, kind of working class people that are, that are, you're, you're, you're really working at something and, and it's, it's a, it's much more structured in a way than people imagine it to be. It's unstructured, but it's, it's not easy. Like, I, I, I feel like people, I don't know. I think there's a, there's an image that I think is it's portrayed. I think people are portrayed as it's fun. It's glamorous. Yeah. But it's like, and, making, it, and it is, I mean, look, you, there are, there are things I can show you uh, pictures of me in different roles and it's like, it's fun. It's like, I get to basically, you know, dress up and play make believe for a living. That's awesome. But along with that is, is going to get those jobs. And that is, is never easy. Making you know? sausage. Yeah. You know, it tastes great, but the making of it's not so not so wonderful all the time. Yeah. It's yeah. tough. So l- let's talk a little bit about uh, your podcast okay. specifically. Okay. 10,000 No's. 
how did that idea come to you, which you touched on a little bit earlier, and uh, where is it right now, and why is it so important to you? Uh, I told you where where yeah. it came from, and um, the the real driving force behind it was to kind of put out some type of encouragement to people that are in, you know, we keep talking about support network, support group or whatever. It's, this is like, I guess my version of trying to, um, you know, encourage or inspire or, or help in some way, anyone who's out there, who's, you know, dealing with their own version of this and whatever it is that they do or within their family life or, um, just, just to hear, and and also it's my own education. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's basically like I'm giving myself a master's class on how to, uh, how to succeed going toward a goal. Cause I'm talking to people like yourself and other people who've done, who've done really great things and had an impact on the world. And I'm going like, huh, okay. So how'd you, how'd you get through that? Oh, you felt like you, it was all falling apart and you still don't, Oh, that's interesting. You know, and just taking notes and it's my way of, I guess sharing it with, you know, whoever is hopefully listening, um, and it's been really, it's been really rewarding to get feedback and emails sometimes from people I haven't seen or heard from in in like in decades, and that's been really cool. And uh, to to hear that they're saying kind of the same thing that I set out to do, and. Um, when you ask about plans for it, I guess it would just be to somehow get it out to the widest audience that it could, or not, not maybe not the widest audience, but but get it out to a larger audience, keep growing it so that more people can can you know hear it, be inspired by it, share it with other people. Um, so you've done about 24, 25 episodes now? I just, this Friday, I release episode 26. 20, okay. So, and then I have two more. So I have 28 are in the can right now. Um, 28 and 29 are in the can? No, no, no. So, oh. so 26 comes out and then 27 gotcha. and 28 and then another one lined up to do. And I'm kind of just, you know, doing them. I, I, I We'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm trying, again, I'm trying not to be defined by it so that I get into, if I get into a position where I wake up and I go, man, this is a total drag. I don't want to do it. I I need to listen to that voice as well. But right now I feel like, uh, you know, I've been doing them weekly every Friday, maybe at some point that will switch. Or I've had this thought of like, maybe that there'll be interviews a couple of times and there'll be solo rips because people have responded well to those. They're a little shorter. Um, I, I, you know, it's evolving, as it goes, I, I, a lot of credit to my buddy, Jay Ferugia, who has like helped me out with the logistics. He's got a, a great podcast called uh, Renegade Radio. And he's, he's really helped me out with like kind of guiding me along the way. Cause I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. So let me ask you a question because you know, a lot of people who are listening, right. Are going to be learning a lot. And there's some people who will be creative people, you know, actors in the field who are entrepreneurs. And there's going to be a lot of people actually who are sitting in offices most of the time. Right. And when they hear you say, yeah, you know, if I wake up and it doesn't feel right, you know, I'm going to evolve. I'll do it differently. You know, if you're going to an office every day, that is your life. Yeah. What do you say to those people who don't have that historical mindset, that sense, not necessarily reality, but that sense of freedom or uh, don't know how to get out of that pattern? What do you say to those folks? Because there's a lot of, 
a lot well, of people who are looking for you, that you inspiration. Know what, you know what I would say? I mean, <laughs> I'm just think, making this connection as, as you're asking it, but this podcast is similar to um, that first apartment on 82nd and 1st that I told you about. This podcast doesn't cost me much. It does come out of my pocket and it does cost me something, but it's relatively, once I get the initial expenses out of the way, um, it it's it's hopefully sustainable. So it has that ability to... Um, it has that ability to, to, I can just kind of let it evolve. I'm not dependent on it. Like I have some leverage with it. Right. So I guess I would say, you know, um, if people are sitting in a cubicle and listening to this and they and they have some other idea of what they think their life would be, it's, it's like, you know, keep your day job for a while and maybe be working on that, um, that other idea while you're doing that and trying to, like I said, that incubation period, Try to see if it's something. Try it on and and see like what do what do you have to lose, you know? Um, and and yet I as I say that I think about how long I dragged my feet on on this because I feared, I really I really fear like what people would say like who who does Del Negro think he is? He's gonna get up there and talk about this like what what is he doing? And what I've kind of realized, maybe people are saying that they, they haven't said it to me yet, but I'm, I'm sure I'll get that at some <laughs> point. But, but a lot of people have, have been like, Hey man, keep it up. Like, like people that I didn't know were listening, which, which has been really cool. Like, Hey, Hey, keep it up. It's really, it's really good. I'm glad you have that out there. So there's a universal theme you just touched on, which is fear, a sense of embarrassment. Maybe I'm not good enough, which goes back to, if you recall, even when you were talking about sports, yeah. right? Yeah. Everyone, all my my friends are really good athletes, but I really am not quite good. I've got to keep working hard. And throughout this podcast, you've been talking about really embracing and creating change, not waiting. You talk about your interviews, you know, or your auditions. Hey, I'm going to go in. I could not go in because I think I won't get it. Or I can go in knowing I probably won't get it but I might be creating an opportunity down the road. So it seems to me as if you've made a very either intuitive and conscious choice or just intuitive, which is I'm going to create my life and create the change I want rather than wait for it. Does that resonate for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, this, I mean, this whole podcast comes from that very feeling, which is, you know, you can keep auditioning. You can, you can, uh, you can really feel great about your work in the room. This happened to me last pilot season. I mean, I felt like I was really feeling great about what I was doing and it was crickets. I mean, I got nothing, nothing. And I remember I kept saying to Deirdre, I don't know. I feel, I feel too good in the rooms for nothing to happen. Something's going to happen. Something good is going to happen, but there was no external, uh, you know, backing up of no that validation. thought, and you, and you really start to feel delusional. You you go, man, I'm saying this, but like nobody's responding. Okay, like, so in, the, in those moments, you're talking to your wife, and you're really like nobody's responding, and I, and I'm hitting it, I'm hitting it out of the park. How do you keep going? What can you tell the listeners? Like, even in those moments, which have to be kind of fearful, anxiety driven, yeah, fairly dark sometimes. Like, uh oh, yeah. How did you overcome that? Uh, 
I don't, I mean, I, I just, um, having faith, looking back historically and thinking, you know, I've been here before it's been, you know, two outs, bottom of the ninth, you know, full count and, you know, and I've gotten a base hit. And so I've done it before, just kind of like focus on this pitch and, and, and do it and then pray that somebody, <laughs> somebody, you know, agrees and you get it. And I, I don't know what it was, but from that, I mean, it, that was, I, I, I still don't know exactly what happened, but, but scandal, which I was worried, they were supposed to use me for the, a full season. And I think, and I, I don't have confirmation, and this is my own dirt philosophy, is that the, the way the election turned out maybe changed storylines in some way or my storyline. But I, I went from a period of thinking I was going to be working for a few months where it, it just, it was, it dried up. And all of a sudden it's just like, I got nothing. And and from that, it, it was this, this whole thing about like, I want to create something that's that's mine. And I want to, and I want to, um, I want to take back some control. I feel like I have too much going on for me to just be waiting for someone to say, Hey, okay, you can work now, Matt. Oh, okay. You can work now. It's like, no, I don't want to wait for you to tell me I could work. And, and I think that there's been an energy that's come from doing this that, that has, um, bled into some other things or, or people have come and said, Hey, I like what you're doing. And, and like, I don't know. I, I, I didn't know exactly what I was going to get from it, but I just knew that I, I think it, it comes from the best place in me, this, this thing, you know? And so it's, it, I felt like, all right, try it. Well, it sounds like a, a theme for you in life is actually embracing uncertainty, uh, trying to create for yourself something that's true to you in uncertainty and believing that over the longer term, good things could happen if you're working with those right people. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the support system, people that know you, you know, the casting director, it's continually moving forward in a way where you have the best chance for success. That's what it seems like to be a sort of a theme for you. Yeah. Because you've had nothing, nothing has been given to you. Nothing has been certain for you, except for you being true to yourself, you believing yourself, your family, your friends, your wife, and and continue to stay true to that over time and taking all of the uncertainty and the fear that comes with it. You you own it. Yeah. Well, that's nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it's true. You know, I guess I I guess there are there are times when I go. You know, you know, I think I judge myself probably too harshly most of the time. Um, and I guess there are times when I go, you know what, man, be proud of what you're doing. You're 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 laying it on the line. And um, not everybody does that. And so uh, it's hard to give myself credit for that. But I guess, you know, that's good. There are there are some times when I, you know, with having a family, you're like, okay, man, you're laying it on the line. But like, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's a little crazy, right? you know? And so you go like, okay, how do I, how can I, you know, reduce some of the exposure or the risk in some way? What are, um, what are other ways to, to tackle it so that, you know, it's as if you're, if you're an investor that your whole portfolio is not just stocks or not just 
real estate, right. you know, um, how do you have a, a blended portfolio? So I try to, you know, hopefully with these other avenues, it's, it's opening myself up, broadening myself and, and being, I guess in the end, it's like being of service in, in more ways than just as an actor, you know? And so it sounds like your wife's been very supportive. Let's, let's talk about your kids. What do they think about having a dad who's an actor? You know, they, I didn't show them stuff for a while. And then they've, um, they've seen some of the things I've done. They saw like Hot Pursuit where I play, a, you know, like a, a dirty cop, <laughs> dirty Southern cop uh, opposite Reese Witherspoon and Sofia Vergara. And, and uh, they think it's fun. You know, they think it's fun and funny. And, and, and Donovan actually came to uh, the set of Scandal at one point for a very, you know, not, not, <laughs> a, not a racy scene, but. Uh, you know, it's kind of crazy. I mean, like it, you're, it's something that's so foreign to what I grew up with. I mean, I had one person in my life that was an actor uh, and he's actually very influential, Pat Collins. He he did a youth group in my town and and he's just a really great guy, great family. And and other than him, and he he really, and he helped me in the beginning. He kind of, and, and throughout, he's been a mentor to me and, and we've just bounced stuff off of each other. Uh, but other than that, like, I didn't really think of actors as even being people. You know, I remember, you know, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I loved it, but I don't know that I thought of like, that Harrison Ford was a person, you know, he was <laughs> Indiana Jones. Like yeah. that's, it, it, it was so different from, I, I think my kids, I mean, they both were always like, no, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. But they both seem to have, you know, time will tell what, what they're going to do. They both seem to have some kind of an interest in, in performance or they light up when they get in front of a group. So we'll see. Um, so how, how has this journey that you've been talking about and sharing with everyone, do you think influenced you as a parent as a, and how you teach and raise your children? Um, it's, it's definitely made me think like, you know, the instinct is to protect your kids. Um, you want to protect them from getting hurt. You want to protect them from, you know, getting their heart broken or, or failure or whatever. But what I realized is like, Hey guys, you're gonna, you're gonna get knocked on your asses. Inevitably, you're going to get knocked on your asses. Um, and you've got to figure out how to get up. So um, you know, you can't protect, you know, you, they got to go do it. They're going to, they're going to play sports. They're not going to be good. They're going to do a play and they're going to, you know, forget their lines or they're going to do whatever. They're going to get their heart broke, whatever it might be that that's inevitable. That's just, that, that's just a part of life. So I guess, um, trying to teach those lessons of, of, you know, this is, uh, you have to have resilience and you have to, and you're not going to be great at something the first time you pick it up most likely. And, and even if you are, there's that Jordan quote, you know, the Jordan <laughs> quote, it's like, I've, I've missed 9,000 shots. I've lost almost 300 games, 26 times. I've been trusted to hit the, <laughs> the winning shot and I've missed, I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that's why I succeed. I mean, that's Michael Jordan saying right. that, you know, that that's, He's the best and he's saying it. So it's like, hey, that that's the deal, guys. So 
Another question about your kids. What have you learned from them being a father? What have your kids taught you as it relates to life and also to 10,000 no's? They've taught me that, um, you know, have faith in the long term. It, kind of what I'm talking about, they've they've brought it home more. Like, ha- I think sometimes when your kid comes to you with a crisis, which happens, you know, daily, <laughs> you, you get like, oh my God, oh, what's going to happen? And you go to, you can go to like a worst case scenario in your head. And, and in most of those situations, those things that, you, you know, you look back at like a few grades ago or um, anything that they're, they were going through that seemed like such a big deal at the time. And it's like, not only are they over it now, but you almost forgot that it even happened. And so you go like, oh, like there's the whole thing of like that kids when they're learning to walk, like, you you know, with the exception, obviously of, of some exceptions for medical reasons, they're, they're going to walk someday. But, but when you're in it, like they never, you never go like, okay, you're just not going to walk. You give up on trying. Like, no, you keep trying until you get it. And then once you get it, you forget that it was a struggle for them to walk. And then they're running around and you, you know, you can't catch them. And, and so I guess that's, that's one of the big lessons is that they, they teach you that, all of what we're talking about, it kind of is crystallized in, in them. And then the other thing is just like uh, to care about someone outside yourself um, that that deeply that you, you know, there, there's another level of um, hopefully my, my work has gotten better as I've gotten older because I think it's because of having a family and and being more, um, I don't know, it's l- less about me now than it used to be. Uh, and I think that's helped me grow as a, as a person, I think. And, and hopefully, you know, also been reflected in, in my work in some way. Well, it sounds like on the first part of what you said, there's the expression, this too shall pass. Yeah. And if we could, sort of let go of what's happening, but embrace that thought. Often this too shall pass and what seems like an emergency today may just be a, a distant memory and it's part of the process. And it sounds like what you're saying with your children, is it gives you more depth and more context. Yeah. Because you have more feelings connected to them and being a father and a husband. And does that allow you to tap into more of what you do creatively? Yeah. Definitely. And I think there's also more vulnerability once you become a parent because you're, you know, there. It's not just you that now you have to worry about this. Now you have to worry about, well, what, you know, the, what what could happen to them that needs to be, you, you know, there's like there's just a vulnerability there. That's another I don't know. I don't know who described it, but I think it's it's pretty good. And they said like it's like having a heart outside of yourself, and and you have to protect it. You know, they're they're gone. I mean, I I 
it's, we're kind of late into this thing. I can't believe we're gone. Uh, uh, mine is going to be the, the <laughs> longest interview. People are going, this guy is an a-hole. We can always do it again. Uh, but uh, yeah, but there was there was an instance where um, I I literally saw Deirdre and the kids um, in, in an accident and thought they were they were mm-hmm. killed behind me. They were behind me on the four hundred five and got smashed out of nowhere from something that happened. So you saw me. this happening. I was driving. We were about to exit. They were in my rearview mirror. And I heard a screech and I looked in my side view mirror. I saw this SUV almost hit the middle divider and then it, it pulled back on the wheel and started going across the four lanes and I'm watching it and it's going, going, going. And I'm going, oh my God, oh my God. And then it's in my rear view and I'm going, oh my God, no, 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 no. And I turn around and I see Deirdre's face from here to less than that tree. And and it just goes wham. And it was like something out of, it hit right. I thought it hit right where Donovan, the kids were five and two at the time. I thought it hit Donovan's door. It was like something out of like a Transformers movie. It was just like, you can't control it. It just swiped them, right? And they they spun around. They came to a dead stop on the side of the road. And I, I pulled over, ripped off the seatbelt and ran out. And it was like time stopped. And you go like, oh my God, this... That I'm now that guy who just lost his entire family. And it was like a beautiful Sunday morning. And and somehow, magically, they walked away unscathed. The car was totaled and they walked away unscathed. And And that was, I mean, talk about a lesson in you, we can go at any time. We... You know, we don't have as much control as we think we have, you know, but care about the time that you have right now, because that's, that's all you can count on. Um, And I still forget these lessons, you know, but that was an unbelievable, uh, an experience that I, I, you know, hope no one ever goes through and, uh, and to have it go through with, with the opposite results that I, I was lucky enough that this happened. It was like a warning, but I, I can't, my heart goes out to anybody who, who has any version of that. I mean, uh, I don't know how you, you know, I don't know how you bounce back from that one. So it sounds like even that experience, you've, you've been able to integrate it in a way that you recognize the risks of life, and you also realize the importance to live your life and to keep following your path with your family. You didn't let it hold you back or change who you were in the sense of living in the fear of that. It just raised the importance and the priority of your family and your life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you know, I don't know that you can live your life. It's it's like with, you know, terrorism. I mean, it's it it was very much the same thing. It's like, my mind goes to different places now when I'm driving or when she and the kids are driving, you know, just, just, it, it just, you can't, that can't not affect you in some way. Just the way my mind goes to different places after nine 11, because, uh, you know, you, that's a, that's a, that's a reality mm-hmm. that could happen, but you almost have to compartmentalize it and just, and go on and pray that you're not affected. Mm-hmm. You know? And live your life. And live you your gotta life. live your life. That's yeah. all you have. But you know, you know, yeah. At some at some point, we're all affected in some way. Right. You, you hope that you 
escape it as much as you can, but like we're, you know, we're all, we're all, I don't want to, I don't want to end this on a total <laughs> no, downer, no, just, but, but no, no, we're the, all headed that direction at some point, but, you know, it's going to, no, and I agree with be you. a way to keep what we, you know, keep what we, all the, the, the preciousness of what we do have while we're here. Uh, you know? And to that point, and part of the themes of, I think all your podcast, at least for me and for today is, you know, we all have choices in life, right? Things are going to happen good and bad, right? And you have a choice uh, to deal with it in different ways. And in life, you can wait or you can create. And it's not always a one or the other, but you have choices to make. And it sounds like you've consistently made choices in a way that's true, again, that you believe in. is about how you want your life to be. And that, to me, seems like a very important theme for us to say, you're making the best bet. And your best bet is on Matt Del Negro and Matt Del Negro and his family. And for each of the listeners, it seems like the best bet is you have to invest in yourself. You have to believe enough and bet enough on yourself because if you don't, nobody else will. You will lead somebody else's life, not your life. And you decided early on that you were going to create and lead your life. And that takes a lot of courage and takes a lot of discipline and willingness to embrace, accept the fear and anxiety that comes with it. And when you listen to all your podcasts, you hear people who have done exactly what you've done, that they recognize that life is short, that sometimes you're leading somebody else's life, that you're not really going into your true self because of all the considerations that come with it. But when you don't lead with your true self, you never lead your life. And you really have done that. And I think 10,000 No's as a podcast is another great example of you leading your true life and going through with your fears, going through with your anxieties and believing that you're not going to avoid them. You're not going to bury them. You're just going to take them with you. Because for all of us, those issues of uncertainty, of anxiety, of not knowing if we're good enough will be there. You just have to take them with you. And that's what you've done. So I can just say as one listener and one person who's on your podcast, I want to thank you for that. And also, I want to thank you for letting me host today and you you being the guest. And uh, it's been fantastic. And I hope all your listeners uh, love knowing more about you and understanding the man, uh, the creative uh, behind such a fantastic podcast. I think that helps all of us on a regular basis. Oh, thank you, man. That's uh, first of all, thanks for, uh, I'll, I'll wrap it up, but thank you for having this idea. I did not, as you know, want to sit down for this. And now <laughs> obviously you can't shut me up, but I'm still a little cringing of what I may or may not have said. Um, thank you for doing this. Thanks for Karen. Thanks for saying that. And um, that, you know, makes me feel good about what I'm doing. Yeah, that's, that's really nice to hear. Thank, thank you. you. My pleasure. Thanks again for listening to 10,000 No's. If you haven't subscribed to us yet, please do. So each week's episode is automatically downloaded to your computer or phone. And if you like what you heard, please help us get the word out by sharing it with your friends and family. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.